London Calling. London Walks Connecting. London Walks here with your daily London fix. Story time, history time. Funny thing about London history, it keeps coming round. It often manages at one and the same time to be strange and remote, but also strangely familiar. To put it in art terms, London history often has a cubism quality and feel to it. If there's a literary analog, surely it's Clarence's great speech in Shakespeare's Richard III. It's his unreeling for us, and for himself, his uncanny, really frightening dream. It's Clarence's dream about drowning. And of course, it's a premonition dream. His brother, Gloucester, the future Richard III, is going to have his brother killed. He has a couple of roughs drown him in a butt of Malmsey, a barrel of wine. The dream has that weird, dreamlike, familiar but unfamiliar cubist quality, especially the instantly recognizable things he sees in the tumbling billows of the main. They're somehow simultaneously familiar and strange, remote. London history, the way it keeps coming round, hits that same register again and again. Here to start with is the Clarence speech. Oh, I have passed a miserable night, so full of fearful dreams, of ugly sights, that as I am a Christian faithful man, I would not spend another such night, though twere to buy a world of happy days. So full of dismal terror was the time. Methoughts that I had broken from the tower and was embarked to cross the Burgundy, and in my company my brother Gloucester, who from my cabin tempted me to walk upon the hatches. Thence we looked toward England, and sighted up a thousand heavy times during the wars of York and Lancaster that had befallen us. As we paced along upon the giddy footing of the hatches, methought that Gloucester stumbled, and in falling struck me that thought to stay him overboard. Into the tumbling billows of the main, Oh, Lord, methought what pain it was to drown. What dreadful noise of waters in mine ears. What sights of ugly death within mine eyes. Methought I saw a thousand fearful racks, a thousand men that fishes gnawed upon, wedges of gold, great anchors, heaps of pearl, inestimable stones, unvalued jewels, all scattered in the bottom of the sea. Some lay in dead men's skulls, and in the holes where eyes did once inhabit, there were crept as twere in scorn of eyes, reflecting gems that wooed the slimy bottom of the deep and mocked the dead bones that lay scattered by. I passed, methought, the melancholy flood with that sour ferryman which poets write of unto the kingdom of perpetual night. The first that there did greet my stranger soul was my great father-in-law, renowned Warwick, who spake aloud, What scourge for perjury can this dark monarchy afford false Clarence? And so he vanished. Then came wandering by a shadow like an angel with bright hair dabbled in blood, and he shrieked aloud, Clarence! 
Clarence has come. False, fleeting, perjured Clarence that stabbed me in the field by Tewksbury. Seize on him, Furies. Take him unto torment. With that, methought a legion of foul fiends environed me and howled in mine ears such hideous cries that with the very noise I, trembling, waked, and for a season after could not believe but that I was in hell. Such terrible impression made my dream. Now let's see this same but different, strange and remote but familiar patterning of London history. See it, if you will, as beads on a necklace. You know, look at this bead. We've been here before. This same one, or almost the same one, put in an appearance however many years ago. And the really weird thing, it's often on the same day, or at least the same time of the year. You begin to wonder if these events are subliminal, perhaps triggered by a certain slant of light that's only here, well, once a year. So, yes, let's work with today's date, June 7th. Clearly it was human agency that was steering this first one, but it still must have been so weird for the people on the receiving end of it. I'm talking about June 6, 1946, and BBC television resuming normal transmission after World War II with the same Mickey Mouse cartoon that had been showing when the service was shut down in September 1939. Or the hoo-ha the other day about Boris Johnson being booed outside St. Paul's Cathedral. We've been there before. 22 years ago, to the day, Tony Blair was heckled by the Women's Institute during a speech he gave at their conference. And those of us who can remember it, being a single drop in an ocean of millions of people who lined the streets to watch the Queen's Silver Jubilee procession on June 7, 1977, our universal response to that will be, how can that possibly have been 45 years ago? But for our centerpiece here, let's go way back to June 7, 1372. Let's hear a London voice that's speaking 650 years ago. The source for this is a document called the City of London Letter Book. It records the expulsion of a leper. A law had been passed 26 years previously that banished lepers from the city. The law was brutally forthright. Lepers were banished to prevent them contaminating others by the contagion of their polluted breath, by carnal intercourse with women in stews and other secret places. Where were they banished to? Well, suburban leper hospitals. St. James's Palace today occupies the site of what had been a medieval hospital for 14 maiden lepers. The hospitals were called Lazarus Houses. They were always situated by crossroads, which meant a steady procession of passers-by for the lepers to beg from. Well, 1346 or 1372, a long time ago. Or is it? I'm thinking of the street people, the beggars, who are always outside London Tube and Railway Stations, asking for help, reaching out to us, can you spare any change, asking for alms. And of course, what makes it really disquieting, and I'm embarrassed to be writing this, is that sometimes these people are middle class. They're where they are because of an extremely bad run of luck. That makes them closer to us. 
It's embarrassing to feel that way because the implication is that it's somehow more acceptable for unskilled people, people with little or no formal education, to be homeless. Goes without saying it isn't, but it just seems to be the way a lot of us are wired. I wish it weren't so. I mention this because the band Leper were about to meet. John Maine was a baker. His extremely bad run of luck was to catch leprosy. Here's the passage. Here's that voice from June 7th, 1372. On Monday next, before the feast of St. Barnabas, the Apostle, 7th of June, in other words, in the 46th year, etc., John Maine, baker, who had oftentimes before been commanded by the mayor and aldermen to depart from the city and provide for himself some dwelling outside it and avoid the common conversation of mankind, seeing that he, John, was smitten with the blemish of leprosy and not to go wandering about the city to communicate with other sound persons. By reason of the infection of that disease, on the peril that awaits the same, etc., was sworn before the mayor and aldermen at the husting Holden on the said Monday that he would depart forthwith from the city and would make no longer stay within it, but would take up his abode elsewhere without the city and not return thereto on pain of undergoing the punishment of the pillory if he should contravene the same, etc. And a Today in London recommendation? I'd say get thee back to the Museum of London, the medieval collection. Let's hear it from the museum itself. The medieval collections are one of the most celebrated elements of the Museum of London's overall holdings because of their breadth, depth, and quality. They are strongest in ordinary domestic objects and provide a cross-section of the things in everyday use in medieval England. For those of us who are bean counters, the collection runs to about 12,000 items. Devote a minute to each of them, it'd take you two weeks of non-stop viewing to see it all. You've been listening to the Today in London History podcast, emanating from www.walks.com, home of London Walks, London's signature walking tour company, London's local, time-honored, fiercely independent, family-owned, just the right size walking tour company. And as long as we're at it, London's multi-award-winning walking tour company. Indeed, London's only award-winning walking tour company. And here's the secret. London Walks is essentially run as a guides cooperative. That's the key to everything. It's the reason we're able to attract and keep the best guides in London. You can get schlubbers to do this for 20 pounds a walk, but you can't get world-class guides, let alone accomplished professionals. It's not rocket science. Whether you're an employer or a consumer, you get what you pay for. And just as surely, you also get what you don't pay for. Back in 1968, when we got started, we quickly came to a fork in the road. We had to answer a blockbuster question. Do we want to make the most money? Or do we want to be the best walking tour company in the world? You want to make the most money, you go the schlubber's route. You want to be the best walking tour company in the world. You do what you have to do to attract and keep elite all-star guides. Bears repeating, 
The way we're structured, a guides cooperative, is the key to the whole thing. It's the reason for all those awards. It's the reason we've got a lively, loyal, discerning following. Quality attracts quality. It's the reason we're able, uniquely, to front our walks with accomplished professionals. Barristers, doctors, geologists, museum curators, archaeologists, historians, criminal defense lawyers, Royal Shakespeare Company actors, Guide of the Year Award winners. Well, you get the idea. As that travel writer famously put it, if this were a golf tournament, every name on the leaderboard would be a London Walks guide. And as we put it, London Walks guides make the new familiar and the familiar new. And on that agreeable note, come then, let us go forward together on some great London walks. Good luck and good Londoning. See you tomorrow.